Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and guess who's with me? That would be Mr. Charles W. Chuck Bryant, who, based on his uh, headwear today, his headwear choice today, apparently has joined the Cuban Revolution. Right. Is that correct, Chuck? It's Friday hat day, so I'm doing my best Fidel Castro. Yeah. With Viva, my, uh, Viva Shea. It's called a combat cap. You like that? It is. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. It's very cool, Chuck. You want to know something cooler? Uh, yes. Okay, so actually, I don't know if cool is the right word. Maybe horrific is a better word. Okay. Uh, there is a study uh, conducted here in the States, and of course, you know, the, the United States, like most other countries, have a long history of, you know, um, well-meaning but really misplaced uh, medical experiments or right, psychological like, experiments. Sure. like giving LSD to uh, unsuspecting Americans, which we've talked about. Right, exactly. This one was a little different. Um this one involved uh, separating twins uh, who were up for adoption at birth in the state of New York. And uh, there were, I think, 13 sets of twins and one set of uh, triplets. And they were all separated oh, through sad. this one adoption agency as part of a study of nature versus nurture. Oh, yeah. So, like, the only thing the adopting parents knew was that their kid was part of an ongoing um, child psychology uh, study. Right. And so the, these researchers were allowed access to these kids over the, their, their lifetimes. And then uh, it went from the 60s to, I think, 1980. And um, the guy who was running the show, his name was uh, Peter Neubauer, right? Uh-huh. He was a child psychologist. He um, apparently realized that... If he were to publish this study, uh, basically he'd be lynched, right? Right. That by the time 1980 rolled around, people didn't think too highly of separating twins. Like the the ethics of of experimentation had changed enough. Not based on the results, just based on the fact that he did this to begin with. Yeah, right. Sure. So um, basically what he did was take all of the research. He had the study. It was ready to be published. And he sealed it, and um, it cannot be opened until 2066. Really? And it's sitting in the archives at Yale University. I imagine 2066, he imagined he'd be long dead by then. Right. So in 2066, we're going to find out a lot about nature versus nurture. I will be long dead, but you might. I'm supposed to make it to 2041, as you know. Uh, that's what your uh, death clock says. The death clock says so. I don't think so. I'll be long dead, too. Yeah, I've got my Vegas odds are against that. Right, yeah. So, um, okay, so Chuck, that's a that's an example of a really terrible experiment. Yeah. Right? For sure. Have you heard of savants, autistic savants? I have indeed. You have, okay. Uh, they actually provide a uh, much less horrible uh, natural experiment, perfect natural experiment, to study the brain. Right. Okay, you want to talk about savants for a second because I'm going to explain later how they make this perfect experiment. Sure, Josh. Uh, you know, uh, autistic savants are people who are mentally deficient in some areas, but excel in others. Like uh, a lot of times, I know there's that kid that plays the piano. You seen him, the jazz trio? I have not. He's 15 or so now, and when he first started playing, he was really young and very advanced musically. So. And he's autistic savant, so that's one good example. Yeah, mu- music comes out a lot mm-hmm. in savantism. Um, there was a guy named Blind Tom. He was this uh, African-American guy at the turn of the last century. Not Hippie Rob. Oh, not Hippie Rob, no, <laughs> okay. Blind Tom. And uh, he was uh, severely um, uh, autistic, uh-huh. and he he could play pretty much any piece of music uh, that he heard once on the piano. 
Um, Interesting. Well, yeah. it's autistic savant is different than autism, though, aren't those two? Sure. Not everybody who is a savant is autistic, and not everybody who's autistic is a savant. Correct. So there is, like, yes, that's a good point. There, there is a um, very, I guess, a subgroup uh-huh. called autistic savants. And perhaps the uh, the most famous savant um, is a guy named Kim Peek. Rain Man? Rain Man. That's that exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, he's the, the real Rain Man is what they call him. Oh, my uh, father the, just made that up. No, no. You were dead on, Chuck. Okay. You have an amazing intuition. Maybe yeah. I'm a savant. Yeah, maybe. I don't think so. But maybe. I'm terrible at math, so I doubt it. Yeah, that comes into play, too, as well. Um, but Kim Peek is this guy who, uh, the guy who wrote Rain Man, uh, Barry Morrow, met uh-huh. uh, in 1984. And in 1988, the movie came out. So he was very much based on Kim Peek. Did not know that. Uh, yeah, the guy can, uh, if you tell him uh, your birthday, mm-hmm. your birth date, right. he'll tell you what day of the week you were born on. Oh, cool. um, he apparently um, has read 12,000 books around that. Around that, He started reading and memorizing things uh, at 14 months. Wow. Um, but he has severe, uh, brain damage, developmental brain damage. Really? So he can't like button his own shirt. Right. He can't care for himself. Luckily, he's got a really good dad who cares for him. Sure. But the, the cool thing about this story is, uh, after Barry Morrow won an Oscar, mm-hmm. he gave it to Kim Peek. Oh, did he write the screenplay? Yeah. Ah. And so, uh, Kim Peek carries it around everywhere he goes. I would too. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's awesome. All right. So the reason why savants, and there have been some really spectacular ones, uh, throughout the ages, uh, provide such a, uh, a great natural experiment for us to investigate the brain is because they, most of them, they almost exclusively have left uh, damage to the left hemisphere of the brain. Right. And, you know, just the very fact that they can excel in math but can't button their own shirts, it, it provides this kind of um, certain framework to, to compare the rest of our brains to. Right, right. You know, it's it's a, it's a, an excellent comparison, right? Right. And the left side is more about detail, correct? And the right side is more about the big picture? You love the lateralization of brain function, don't you? I do. Yes. Well, well, I like the brain period because it's still so uh, mysterious, you know. It's amazing how little we know still about the brain. Yeah, it's amazing and disconcerting. Yes, at the same time. I predict the next 50 years are going to see um, tremendous advances in our understanding of the brain, in part because of the study of savants, right? Right. So, yeah, you were talking about the lateralization of brain function. Yeah, you were right. Uh, Left is the detail-oriented side. Right. And right sees the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there are some people who are studying savants, um, and, you know, like I said, one of the reasons why they are interesting is because almost all of them have damage in one form or another right. to the left side of the brain. Right. Uh, and even more suspicious is, is you can, you can, um, maybe get in a car wreck or have a stroke. And if, if you, the, the left side's impaired, people have been known to basically come out of it a, a savant. Right. And sometimes autistic savant. Interesting. Uh, right. Um, so one of the people that I'd like to talk about today who's studying savants is Dr. Alan Snyder. Yes, Schneider, as I like to call him. He is uh, an expat American uh, who runs the Center for the Mind. That's the British spelling of center uh-huh. uh, in Sydney, <laughs> Australia. The Centra. And he is uh, he's a very eccentric person. Yeah, it sounds like it. He really is. But he, he's been studying savants for years, and um, he has come up with a theory uh, about mindsets, and it's based on the lateralization of brain function. Take I it, love Chuck. it. I love that. Um, yeah, the mindset, basically, his theory is that uh, mindsets are created, they're personal, um, basically, definitions on your experience. Right. So if you see uh, you know, a bear in the woods, well, that's a little less common. Let's say a dog. 
in your driveway, you'll note things about the dog, that he's furry, that he has a tail, that he walks on four legs, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And your brain kind of stores that away. So next time you don't see a dog, you think, oh, my gosh, what, what is, is that creature walking what toward What is me? that? I've never seen one of those Yeah, before. and he calls these mindsets. Right. So, Chuck, uh, when we, when we're, we're basically assaulted with stimuli at all times. All the time. Raw data, sure. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, from, like, the humming of a fluorescent light right. um, to, you know, um, conversations that we overhear in, uh, in right. restaurants, that kind of thing. Colors, actions, tastes, smells. Yeah, we're we're constantly assaulted with sensory yeah. input, right? We have this thing called latent inhibition, right? Which is a brain process they're still again trying to get a handle on. Um, but latent inhibition uh, is is basically the process by which we filter out stuff we already know, right? Stuff we can identify, so we're not constantly focused on the buzzing of a fluorescent light. Exactly, or well, hearing all the voices in a restaurant. Obviously, that'd be maddening, right? And actually, as a side note, um, schizophrenics. Uh, have very low latent inhibition. Indeed. So they're constantly assaulted with all of this stuff. But they also have the added um, horrible side effect of um, attaching meaning to to these snippets of conversation, right? So say specifically you're hearing voices um, and and you're not able to externalize or internalize, meaning you can't tell the voices are coming from your head and you're attaching meaning to them. Right. That's schizophrenia, right? That's horrible. So it's Snyder's uh, belief, and I, I'm pretty sure uh, the uh, medical establishment at large is that um, we're, we're getting all of this raw data. It's being accepted uh, into our right hemisphere, right, right. which sees the big picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sends it over to the left hemisphere, uh, which processes it into details, which we hang on to. This this uh, interplay between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere creates those mindsets you were talking about, right? Exactly. Which, like you said, is is how we can see a dog and come to understand what a dog is. And exactly. then later on, when we see another dog, we just say, oh, that's a dog. Right. Like we kind of categorize things in packets, right? Sure. So um, we say all that to say this. If supposedly... We have damage to the left side of the brain, the detail-oriented brain. All we're doing is getting raw data, right. and we're not able to create these mindsets. Exactly. There's this wonderful article uh, by a guy named uh, Lawrence Osborne, um, and it was in the New York Times in 2003 called Savant for a Day. Uh-huh. And he spent the day with Alan Snyder, and the whole article is very long, but it's definitely worth reading. Um, he chronicles you know, uh, the, his day with Alan Snyder. And one of the things that Snyder mentions is that some of the savants that he studies when they come to see him at the center, for the mind, yeah, they they may have been there dozens of times, but they can get lost every single time just because of the change of shadows. Right, it looks different. They're getting different input. Uh huh. Right. Makes sense. Sure. So they'll get lost because it doesn't look the same way it did that last time, and they can't form mindsets saying, "Right, this is the direction I'm going." Right. Right. So since people with uh, left left hemisphere brain damage. Uh, tend to be savants, right? Or people who are savants have have that condition. Um, Snyder has actually come up with a a theory that all of us are savants. If you get struck on the head and your left hemisphere is damaged, you you, you could become a savant. Right, so we're all potential savants. Right, and basically the left side that, that helps create these mindsets, that pays attention to these details and hangs on to them are keeping us from being savants. Right. Right? That's really interesting. So how do you investigate something like this? Well, he uh, uses a process called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yes, he does. But we're going to call it TMS. Yes, it's much easier. For our purposes. Uh, TMS was originally designed, Josh, to examine uh, brain functions during cranial surgery. Mm -hmm. 
And what it does is it focuses magnetic pulses to either suppress or enhance the electrical functions of the brain. Yeah, it depends on the frequency of the pulses, right? Absolutely. And we were talking, you know, privately, and I, I thought it sounded very relaxing as if it, your brain was being massaged. Yeah. And disappointed, uh, I was disappointed because you said that you don't feel anything. You're not supposed to feel anything. It, it sounds very nice to me. It, it does kind of, but I think that you could probably get something like what you're describing at like Brookstone maybe, so don't don't fear. Oh, yeah, that's where you should go. Sure. Sharper image perhaps. Uh, they're under. Uh, are they? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Alan Snyder started using TMS uh, because he found this curious little side effect of people that were getting tested with TMS um, had some cognitive malfunctions. Right. So, like speech impediments. During, exactly. While while this thing was trained on their brain, right? Right. But it also had some. Uh, if you did, if you put this on an average person, it had some pretty cool results. Yeah, this is what Snyder's been doing. This is his new experiment. Right, and it's very cool. Um, Forty percent of the people, the normal folks, let's call them, uh, that he exposed to TMS, um, they displayed artistic and quantitative abilities that they didn't seem to have before. Right. So. Right on the money, it seems like it's actually tapping into a part of our brain that we have and we don't use, which sort of backs up his theory. Right, and some of the uh, some of the things he puts people through. Well, uh, he he uses TMS on them, uh, which apparently kind of it looks a lot like a, a shower cap. Right, it has a bundle of uh, magnetic wires in it. Right, a thinking and, cap, if you will. Yeah, uh, which is kind of an in- inaccurate moniker, but unfor- right. an unfortunate one. The press has kind of uh, put on it. Right, they had to label it. Right, sketchy. You got to. Sure. You got to get people to read, right? Oh, yeah, uh, which is why we use. It in the title of the article exactly. I wrote, right? Sellouts or sellouts. Yeah. Um, so uh, depending on where you put it on the skull, um, it's going to affect that, that very localized region of the brain. Right. So, of course, Snyder's interested in training this on the left hemisphere of the brain. Sure. Um, and he's actually uh, using a low frequency, so he's uh, depressing the, the left brain's function. And reportedly, like you said, 40% of people are showing results. One of the things he likes to get people to do is draw animals. Right. And... Apparently, with those forty percent who show uh, a reaction to TMS, they they their drawings tend to get better or right. more realistic, more lifelike. Uh-huh. And uh, Snyder's theory is that uh, it, it, this this drawing from memory is not based on the uh, preconceived notions that you already have. Right, right. That would come from the left hemisphere of the brain. Curiously, he also has found that people can, um, you know, ordinary people we're talking about, can identify prime numbers from sight. I love from that the one. field. Yeah. And uh, words, uh, <laughs> I believe, uh, proofreading, uh, grammatical errors all of a sudden mm-hmm. out of nowhere. So over the course of this TMS therapy or whatever, um, they're getting progressively better at these right. tasks, right? Mm-hmm. But it only lasts about an hour, though. Is that correct? Yes. And it may not happen at all. Uh, there's an argument out there that, like, if you draw 14 cats in a row, they're going to get better. Right, true. That that may or may not be true. But it, it is pretty interesting uh, data that he's coming up with. And uh, I don't think arguments like that are, are really putting the kibosh on his investigations using TMS, right? Right, I don't think so. No. Which, by the way, also, uh, I understand you said is has just been approved by the FDA for use in treating depression? So, yeah, Josh, they studied uh, 300 people that had uh, clinical uh, depression in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they found out that people that underwent the TMS therapy were twice as likely to go into remission. That's awesome. And they're also now, uh, this is just as of last week, I think, 
uh, are studying asking for stroke victims to volunteer for studies with TMS. Yeah, cause apparently uh, with with depression, um, if you train it on the frontal lobe, I believe, uh-huh. uh, they uh, and you put it on a high frequency, they've actually shown that it it restructures the uh, brain. Like your neurons really? are, are restructured, um, and of course, in the frontal lobe, that's where your um, your ability to regulate mood is. Right. So uh, that's just weird, but very hopeful. It is. It makes you wonder if this thing could be the key to making people smarter, curing uh, brain disease. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess I guess the takeaway from this one is the next time you meet uh, a savant of any kind, and uh, he or she tries to impress you with their you know mathematical or musical skills, you can think to yourself, I could do that too if I had left side brain damage. Sure. Yeah. You're not so special. Exactly. So, uh, Chuck, that would be, uh, what's a thinking cap and could it make me a genius? The answer is no, not really, but, uh, right. that's what you would type in if you wanted to go to howstuffworks.com, right? Yes, indeed. Um, and I think you had something you wanted to say to everybody. Well, yeah, Josh, this is pretty exciting. Before we get to listener mail, uh, we are launching a blog, not just you and I, but I believe six or seven blogs on the mm-hmm. website. A whole mess of them. Whole mess of them, and they gave uh, you and I, as you know, our own little blog called Stuff You Should Know. Yes. Although the whole entire blog section is called Stuff You Should Know. Don't get confused. That's yes, true. it is. I hadn't noticed that. It wow. Is. They named it after us. to pay more attention. So we would like our listeners to uh, get active. This is a call out to our listeners to get on the blogs. We're going to be discussing all kinds of cool stuff that uh, isn't long enough to make into a full episode. So, like, shorter topics on there, and we'll also be talking about the shows that we do uh, every Tuesday and Thursday are released. So. Yeah, and actually we've picked up on a couple of uh, listeners' mail, listener mail suggestions sure. that we've written on, so keep those ideas coming, too, because, you know, Chuck and I can only do so much. Right, so go to, go to the uh, website and look for blogs. It should be pretty easy to find. We'll have a URL for you very shortly. Yeah. And uh, enjoy. Talk to each other. Connect. That's great. What Nicely done, Chuck. Thanks. Okay, so you know what this is, right? It's listener mail time. Yes, it is, Chuck. Yes, it is. Uh, so, Josh, this week we heard from uh, a man named Jason Devenier. Is that how you pronounce it? you know? I don't. I've never met him. We're uh, email pals. He works for How Stuff Works uh, up in Chicago. Okay, so this is an insider deal, but that's fine. Sure. Because uh, Jason did write us. Uh, this is about the moon landing episode and whether or not it was faked. Right. Uh, Jason is a three-time space camper, which is kind of cool. I hope you ribbed him for that. I totally did. And full-time nerd, self-professed. Yeah. And he said he was excited to see a podcast about the moon landing. Uh, when you were talking about dust on the moon, you said that in the photos, video dust appears to be clouding or kicked up more than dust would be on Earth. This would occur because the particles are airborne longer due to the lack of gravity. Mm-hmm. One-sixth the gravity, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's we not no gravity. Uh, what didn't fit was when you insinuated... That to recreate this effect on Earth, it would require a vacuumized soundstage. Josh, apparently the air has nothing to do with it. On Earth, the dust particles will rise and fall at the same rate, regardless of the presence of air in the room. The only effect air would have on a falling object is to provide resistance. When you're dealing with something as small as tiny rocks that make up this dust, air resistance would be such a small factor, it would not be perceptible to the naked eye. So, Jason, fully geeked out. Set it straight. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Jason. And on that note, with the moon landing, we had a bunch, a bunch of people write in about the MythBusters episode, mm-hmm. where they um, tested out some of these theories, and they actually shot a beam of light, a laser, which I guess is a beam of light, uh, and it 
there, there are these reflectors that they left on the moon, and it bounced back, uh, and they saw this. So yeah. they pretty much proved absolutely that we did land on the moon. And I don't have a list of everyone that wrote in uh, telling us about that show, but it was a lot of folks. Yeah, I see you have it marked lots of listeners. Lots of uh, listeners. Where the name should be. Nicely done. Yes, thank you. Well, if you want to become uh, Chuck's or my email buddy, uh, you can send us an email about anything you like uh, at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?